right, good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are still in 1 Peter chapter 1. Last week we covered only one verse. That's why we're still in 1 Peter chapter 1. But it was a really important one verse. It was the verse that made the transition in 1 Peter from the indicative section to the imperative section. In that one massive sentence from verses 3 through 12, Peter laid out a whole bunch of very rich truths about who God is, about what he has done for us in Christ, and about who we are now, that we have been converted, that we have been united with Christ by faith. I want to reiterate that we could have spent months and months savoring these amazing theological declarations that are made in verses 3 through 12. Some of them were deep. Some of them were extremely complex. Some of them were super sweet to our taste. And some were really challenging to our minds. Peter taught us amazing things. But now, in verse 13, he is calling us to responsive action as he transitions to the imperative. These are calls to action. These are commands that we will look at over the next several weeks. These are exhortations. We have seen what the Lord has done, and now we hear what we should do in response. I want to remind you of a couple important principles from last week. Number one, the indicative comes first. The indicative comes first and serves as the basis for the imperative. And we we want to hold on to that. That has got to be the way it works because, number two, the order is important. It is indicative and then imperative. If we work the other way, we spoil the gospel. And we become involved in a self-salvation project. And any righteousness that we might have is self-righteousness, which is filthy rags before the Lord. It is indicative and then imperative. And these two things travel together. They really cannot be separated. We cannot have indicative and leave out imperatives. And we certainly don't want to have imperatives without the indicative truths of what God has already done for us in Christ. I saw a a headline of an article written by Justin Taylor. Um, I just saw it this week, and uh, the headline was this. Imperatives minus indicatives equals impossibilities. And, And that's pretty good, because if we've got all of these calls to action, all of what we will see today, the call to holiness, but we don't have Christ in us, We don't have the Holy Spirit in us. We are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If if all of those things are not true, if the indicative is not there, then the imperative becomes impossible. To, To say to people that he has not made holy already, be holy, is outrageous. It's outrageous and it's absolutely impossible and it would leave us hopeless. So we want indicatives that lead to imperatives. And that's what we're going to see in 1 Peter Peter called us last week to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he showed us that the way to having the hope, the hope of our hearts, fixed firmly in the grace that is coming, is to engage our minds. To engage our minds in active and clear thinking about the reality of that grace that is certainly coming. I said it this way, if you want to have hope, if you want to have your heart fixed firmly on the hope that is yours in Christ, then you need to think. You need to think rightly about the gospel. And you are capable, you are capable of deep and complex thinking. All of you in this room, all of us in this room are capable of this deep, 
complex theological thinking, and I'm confident of that for a number of reasons, but primarily because you've got the Spirit of God living inside of you. You're capable of thinking on the deep things of God because God dwells within you. And let's not ever forget that. So when you're feeling hopeless, I told you last week what you, what you should do. You should think hard about the gospel. You should read it. You should discuss it. You should listen to it preached. You should preach it to yourself. You should, as we said last week, gird up the loins of your mind and sweat to think about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that your hope is fixed firmly on the grace that is coming to you. Hope, this hope that we're talking about comes from a personal relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like apart from that, you don't have any hope at all. I'll just tell you, tell you straight, right? We're talking about believers. If we want to have our hope fixed firmly on the grace that is coming to us, we want to think deeply about these things. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got no hope at all. You've got no hope in this life nor in the life to come if you are separated from God because of your sins. And so if you're hopeless today, I'm, I'm inviting you already to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. He's saved your life. He will save your life. He will give you hope, not just for this life, but for the life to come of eternity in heaven with him. It's only by his death, by his resurrection, by the grace that he shows to us that we can be saved. This week, we're going to come to another imperative Peter, in the text that we'll look at today, is going to call us to be holy this week. The command is be holy. And I'm confident I lost some of you right there. Right, right there. You don't want to hear any more of this. Some of you are like, ah, be holy. Preacher, I am holy. I have been saved. I have been redeemed. I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I am holy. Okay. If that's where you're at, I'm going to say point taken. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, positional holiness has already been granted to you at your conversion. That is not what this text is about. This text is not about positional holiness that is granted to us. This text is about practical and personal holiness that flows out of that positional holiness that is granted to you. So if you are holy, this text says, be holy. If you are holy by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, this text is saying to you, be holy. Be holy. And if you are holy, you will be holy. That's the point of the text today. So what we're looking at today is not a call to act holy so that you'll be approved by God. It's because you've already been approved by God. You have already been adopted. You are an obedient child. The text this week says... Now act like it. And we need that. We all need that today. You're going to see, even in the text today, a little bit of this indicative imperative connection. Even in the couple of sentences we'll look at today. We all need this call to holiness today. Look at it in verse 13. Let's start in verse 13, because that's where we left off last week. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. This is God's word. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. You have chosen us according to your foreknowledge. You have caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
You have made us your children. You have given us an inheritance. And we are thankful for all of this. And we desire, we desire to live every moment of our lives in response to it. We desire to be the obedient children you have made us to be. We desire to forsake the old ways that were marked by ignorance and sin. We want to be holy in all of our behavior because you have called us to this. And we ask for your help through your spirit to pursue this holiness, not as an act of self-salvation, but as an appropriate response to all that you have done for us in Christ. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is our righteousness, who is our holiness. Amen. All right, so, so as we look at this text today, the main imperative, the main command, the main call to action really isn't found till the second part of verse 15. When he says, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. That's the one exhortation. That's the central command of the text today. Everything else that we're going to look at modifies that in some way. All of this text that we're going to look at today is getting us to that. Be holy yourselves in all of your conduct. So know that that's where we're going, that that's the command to obey today. But look at where he starts in verse 14. This is interesting. He says, as obedient children. That's super interesting. Last week I told you that verse 13 moves into the imperative section of the letter, into this section where Peter is going to call us to action over and over and over. But I want you to see that doesn't mean he leaves the indicative statements behind. It doesn't mean that he leaves those declarations of truth behind. In fact, what Peter is going to often do is sprinkle them along as a reminder of why you are called to these actions. And such is the case right here. He is saying to these believers and to those of us in the room who are believers that we are obedient children. In fact, he's already laid the foundation for this back in chapter 1, verse 3. Look at that. Blessed be the God and Father. This is the beginning of that doxology, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, he made us his children, right? He's caused us to be born again into his family, right? He has made us his children, not by anything that we have done, but by his own sovereign grace, The text said, because of his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Not because of your holiness. It's not because of your holiness that you have been born again. It's because of his great mercy that you have been born again. And you are his obedient child. Hallelujah to that, right? He didn't wait. He didn't wait for me to make myself obedient. He didn't wait for me to make myself holy in order to become his child. That's really good news. That's really good news that that's not the way the gospel works, right? It's not as if God has an audition for people to become part of his family. And if you perform well enough, he will accept you in. No, because of his great mercy, he causes us to be born again. And he welcomes us into his family, and we are his children. So, what I want you to see here is that this call to holiness is based on our new status. It's based on our new position as his obedient children. It's not outside of that. It's based on that. He has made us obedient children, and therefore we are called to be holy. Tom Schreiner said it like this. Peter does not summon believers to do God's will in their own strength. They are God's children, and as his children, they are to obey him. That's where we're going with all this. 
Now, one other thing before we move on from this is that you'll want to notice the family language here. That's throughout this text. That's throughout much of what we sing about today. It's family language. He is our father. We are his obedient children. The language that's used to describe this relationship is not the language of the marketplace. It's not the language of the battlefield. It's the language of the living room. Friends, our relationship with God is not transactional. It's not a business relationship. We're his kids. It's children. He's our father. So we praise his name for that, right? We're not his clients. We're not his patients. We're his children by his grace. Before we move on, I want you to notice that the same word for obedient that is used here to describe us, we are his obedient children as obedient children, that same word is used two other times in chapter 1 alone. We see it in verse 2. So look at that. First Peter, let's start in verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled by his blood. We are chosen to obey, right? It's the same word that's used in verse 22 of chapter 1 when he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. I want you to notice there, he's assuming obedience, right? This is an indicative statement right at the beginning of verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love, Right? That's indicative. And then in the second half of the verse, he calls you to action. Therefore, fervently love one another from the heart. You are already obedient. Therefore, be obedient. That's exactly the same thing he's saying in verse 1. We are obedient children. So friends, let's be obedient children. Read on. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Now remember... The main imperative is be holy. In all of your conduct, be holy. And what we see here is another participle like we talked about last week. This participle of do not be conformed modifies and explains how we be holy. Part of holiness is negative. There is a negative aspect to holiness, namely, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed. In other words, be different. In fact, if I was going to sum up the end of this phrase, I would sum it up that way. Be different. That's what we're talking about here. Specifically, be different from who you used to be. Be different from your old ways is what he's telling us here. Karen Job says, in other words, to be holy requires a change of one's way of life from before. When one's behavior was determined by unrestrained impulses to sin, even in ways accepted by society. You catch what she's saying there? Like, if you're going to be holy, you've got to be different than the way you used to be. If you're going to be holy, you can't keep going on the same road you were going on when you were giving yourself over to these passions and lusts. These things that everyone else was doing, you were doing them. You've got to stop that. Don't be conformed to that way of life any longer. You've got a new life. You've got a new life. Be conformed to that way of life. We see this same principle in a couple of other places in the scriptures. Romans chapter 12 is one of them. Look at Romans chapter 12, you know this. Therefore I urge you, brethren, 
by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, in other words don't, don't go that way anymore. Go the new way that God has called you to. Don't be conformed to the world anymore, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We see the same thing in Ephesians 2, which is just good gospel stuff. Like, listen, if you don't, if you don't track with anything else I'm saying today, just zoom into this. Just zoom into this and your life might be forever changed. Just hear the word of God in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Be different, right? You used to live this way. You, you gave yourself over to the lust of the flesh. You were by nature children of wrath. But that is not who you are anymore because of God's great mercy. And because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive with Christ. And so we don't go on living that same old way. That old way, that old way that we're called to be different from was marked by lust and passion. Peter speaks about these fleshly desires and the outcomes of those desires more in chapter 4 of this letter. But he's going to elaborate on this some more in chapter 4. Look at it in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Right? So what we're talking about, no longer for that, but for this. And he describes it in more detail. He says, for the time has already passed. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Do you, do you catch what he's saying there? He's like, you had this old way of life. You had plenty of time. Plenty of time in that old way of life. And you don't live that way anymore. You've been changed. You don't live that way anymore. Put that all aside and live in this new way. And they're going to be surprised at you. I love that's what he says here. They're going to be surprised that you don't keep going with them. They're going to be surprised that you don't do those same things anymore that you've got new desires, new passions that guide you to new behaviors. Your old ways were marked by lusts and passions, and those lusts and passions, he says in this text, were fueled by ignorance. Right? In your ignorance. This is super interesting because last week, we talked about hope is a matter of our hearts. 
And in order to get our hearts fixed right in hope, we saw that we've got to engage our heads in active and clear thinking. Well, today's text, we're called to holy living, which we might say has to do with our hands, which are also linked with our heads. Our hands are also linked with our heads, not just our hearts, especially as we see in this text that that unholy living, that unholy action with our hands was the result of ignorance. Well, if that's the case, ignorance of what? Ignorance of what? Namely, God and His goodness and grace in Christ Jesus. Ignorance of what? The gospel of grace and peace through Christ alone. Ignorance of what? The hope that comes from a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Ignorance of what? The truth that God is holy and man is sinful and Christ died for sinners so that sinful man could be reconciled to a holy God. That old way of life was ignorant of all of these glorious truths. All of those glorious truths we celebrated in verses 3 through 12. You were ignorant of those things. But you're not anymore. You're not ignorant anymore. You have seen, you have tasted, you have comprehended the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. How could you go on living that old way? Like you didn't know these things now. Your old ways, your old passions were fueled by ignorance. I'm terrified that some of you are still there. That that some of you in this room are still ignorant of God's holiness. You're still ignorant of Christ's sacrifice. You're still ignorant of your own sinfulness even and the need for Christ's sacrifice. You're still ignorant of his great offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're still ignorant that you need a Savior and Christ is the only Savior. One of the things we want to accomplish today is that you would not be ignorant any longer, but that you would know the truth of the gospel and that you would trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and that your lives would forever be changed. But for brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are going to live in holiness, if we're going to live as obedient children, we just cannot go on the way we used to when we walked in ignorance. This part of the text is teaching us that we must be different. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4. When he says, you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I really hope that in the next couple weeks we're going to get to baptize somebody. And and when we do that, we're going to celebrate that the old is gone and the new is come, right? If any man is in Christ, the old man is gone. Look, new things have come. And friends, if you've experienced that, the expectation is that it will be new, that it will be different, that you will be different. So don't go on living in the old ignorant way of sin because you have a new knowing way of holiness. You got new knowledge, which bred new passions, which should produce new behaviors at conversion. And if that hasn't happened, I would question conversion. Like if if you're not a new creation with new passions, a new lifestyle, you gotta question conversion because that word conversion means to change. 
In fact, I, I looked it up. It means cause to change in form, in character, or in function. You say, I've been converted. The question is, are you changed? Can we see the change? Read on in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, But like the Holy One who called you. Man, I just want to encourage you this week to meditate on that phrase. Just that one little section of the verse. The Holy One who called you. 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 There's so much richness there to contemplate and think about. It is glorious and wonderful. The pattern for our holiness that this text is calling us to is the Holy One who called us. The pattern for our holy living is the Holy One who has called us. Edmund Clowney said, God himself becomes the model for the repatterning of our lives. He is the model for our holy living. And when we talk about the holiness of God, when we talk about the holiness of God, we are talking about a rich concept, right? One could write a master's level thesis on the holiness of God and not exhaust all that there is. So how, how do I, in the next five minutes, talk to you about the holiness of God? I want to boil it down to two things. Two things about the holiness of God. One, when we talk about God being holy, we're talking about God being other. God being different. And two, when we're talking about the holiness of God, we're talking about God being pure. God being righteous might be another word that we would use. So let's talk first about God as other. We need to recognize that God is different from everything else, from everyone else. He is separated from everything else. In fact, I remember uh, my Greek professor in college was talking about the picture of the word for holiness, and he was using it describing a, uh, someone in the kitchen who might be cutting up vegetables, and as they're cutting up those vegetables, they cut the thing, and then they slide it over. He's like, that's the picture of holiness, that he is not one of us. He is separated from us and slid over for a specific purpose, right? We're cutting the vegetables up. We're getting the parts that we want. We're sliding them over. The rest is going in the trash. And that what is over there is separated from the rest and designated for holy purpose. That picture of God being different. To whom can we compare the Lord? Like when we describe God, are we going to say, oh, he's kind of like, kind of like my dad. What would you do? What is God like? There's nothing like him. He's altogether different. He's holy, holy, holy. Those angels that fly around him all the time, that's what they're saying. They're like, holy, holy, holy. There's no one, no one else like him. He's the one. He's the only one. He's altogether different. So I want us to embrace that. When we're talking about the holiness of God, we are talking about his otherness. Maybe a different way to say it is he is different than everything else in his essence. He is essentially different from everything and everyone else, there is none like him. In fact, that may be one of the highest praises that we can say to the Lord. Oh, Lord, there is none like you. Not in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth. There is none like you. To whom could we compare the Lord? He is other and he is pure. All right, that's the second part of God's holiness that I want us to focus in on. That he is pure. Sometimes we talk about his righteousness. That is, he is different, not just in his essence, but in his actions, right? 
He always does what is right. He always does what is just. He always does what is true. He is righteous. He is holy in that sense, right? Never a mistake, never a flaw, never less than perfection. He is absolutely pure, right? So that's like quick, man, that's, that's not enough to talk about the holiness of God. But those are two things I want you to nail down. When we talk about God as holy, he is different. He is other. He is different in his essence, and he is pure. He is righteous. He is different in his actions. And before we move on, I want you to notice that the beginning of verse 15 says, he has called us. Like the holy one who called you. This is another indicative reminder of what God has done. Like as Peter calls us to be holy, he has said, he's made you, he's made you his obedient children, and he has called you. That concept of calling, especially in Peter, is rich. Wayne Grudem outlines it pretty well. He says, by mentioning calling here, and four other times in the letter, four other times he mentions calling, Peter reminds his readers that it was God who initiated their salvation when the gospel came to them in power, summoning them out of darkness into fellowship with himself. It was a powerful, effectual calling into the Christian life, and all it involves, a calling to live with God and be like him. So before we get to the call to be holy, let's remember that it is the Holy One. The Holy One is the one who called us to himself. So, be holy. That's what the text says. So, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Like the Holy One who called you. What do we say about God's holiness? We said he's other. And so this is a call for you and me to be other, to be different from the lost folks around us. Like if if we put a Christian and a non-Christian in the room, we should be able to tell. We should be able to tell which one is a follower of Jesus and which one is ignorant, right? Ignorant of the goodness of God in the gospel of Christ, which one is guided by their sinful passions and lusts of the flesh. We should be able to tell which one is a new creature, which one has been given a new heart, which one is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. As the Holy One who called us is different, we should be different from the world around us. We should be different from our old selves. In our essence, we are to be different. We are different, so let's be different. If you are a new creature in Christ, The old is gone, the new has come, so be holy, be other, be different. And secondly, be pure. This is the call. As the Holy One who called you, be holy, be different, be pure. Live with obedience to God's Word. And if we are living in obedience to God's Word, it's going to be observable to people who watch us. It will be observable evidence of the change that is within us. If we are different in our actions, if we are pure in our actions, it will be observable evidence that our lives have been changed. Paul Washer is one of my favorite preachers, and he has often told this story about demonstrating the reality of the change that Christ brings to our lives. And he says, suppose I came into the meeting and I was 10 minutes late. I was 10 minutes late for preaching today, and you had to sing a couple extra songs waiting on me, and everybody was worried about when I was going to get here. And suppose I came in, and, and your, your pastor said, hey, why are, you, why are you late, Paul? And he said, what if, what if I said, well, on the way here, I got a flat tire? 
And as I was changing that tire, one of the lug nuts rolled out into the road. And when I went to get it, a coal truck ran me over. That's why I'm 10 minutes late. If he said that, what would be the response? If Paul Washer said that, what would be the response? There is no way you got hit by a coal truck and you're standing here in front of us now. There is no way. If you got hit by a coal truck, we would be able to tell, right? And then Washer lowers the boom and he says, and yet some of you claim you've had an encounter with the living God. The Holy One has called you and we cannot tell. We need to be holy. We are called here to be holy. That is to be pure. We've been given a new heart and therefore the world should be able to tell. The call here is to be holy, to be other, to be different, and to be pure, to be righteous. And notice he is giving this command to exiles. He is saying to the exiles who are scattered about, the chosen ones who are exiles who are scattered about outside of their homeland, living amongst people who are not like them in a place that is not their home. And this is applicable to us as well. The call to be holy is not to people who live in the temple. The call to holiness here is to people who are scattered about in the, in the pagan nations, in the lost world. Be holy even when no one around you is holy. Be holy even in a context that is unholy. R.C. Sproul really hammered on this, and I thought it was really good. He said, the oldest argument in the world for depending behavior that is, that is that everyone else is doing it. But God does not care what everybody else is doing. God knows what everybody else is doing. He is concerned about what we are doing, and he tells us not to be conformed to those patterns. Right? Do you ever say that to your kids? Oh, mom and dad, well, why not? Everybody else is doing it. The answer I got was, they're not my kids. They're not my kids. I'm not in charge of them, but you're my kid. And so I'm telling you to live in a different way. He goes on. This is really good. He says, it's terrible. It's terrible that the civil magistrate government sanctions abortion on demand. But it does not matter what the civil magistrate says about it. What the civil magistrate allows has nothing to do with what God allows. We live in an unholy culture, friends. And that is not an excuse to be unholy. The call to holy living was to exiles who are living in a place that's not their home. It doesn't matter what way the culture goes. You need to hear this, believer in Jesus Christ. Be holy. Be holy. That's the expectation on you. He's made you holy. Therefore, be holy, and it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. You are called to holiness. Be different, be pure, even in the midst of a pagan, sinful world. And as if that's not heavy enough, look what he says next. He says, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, in all your behavior. Not just some of your behavior on some of your days in some of the parts of your life, but be holy in all your behavior. Craig Keener said, a life consecrated to God means a life set apart for his service. In today's terms, this would not look like a Christian who simply attends church weekly or monthly and ties or donates a portion of her income, like a member paying dues to an elite club, every day, and all one's resources belong to God. This does not mean that one does not work or live in secular environments. It means that one's, one functions as God's ambassador there treating others and speaking according to kingdom values such as love, gentleness, and concern for the weakest. 
doesn't mean that we just separate ourselves and we live just isolated amongst ourselves. We form little communities, little holy communities that never have any impact on the world. No, he's saying this to exiles who are scattered about. Exiles who are scattered about in the world. Be holy. Be holy out there so that that little light of Christ that shines in you will shine out into the darkness and people's lives will be changed. Be holy in all your behavior. All of it. And then look at verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I think this is maybe my favorite part of the text today. He's given us all these reasons. Like you are obedient children. The Holy One has called you. He's given us all these reasons. He's given us all this direction. Uh, Don't be conformed anymore to that old way of life that was yours in ignorance. He's given us all these reasons to be holy. All this direction about how and why we should be holy. But then he drops the hammer here. Peter drops the hammer. He says in verse 16, because. Because is an important word. You want one more reason to be holy? Here it is. It's written. God said it. God said for you to be holy. Not just here, although that would be enough. If it was just here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and God said, be holy, that'd be enough, right? We would say, okay, okay, I'll, I will be holy. But it's over and over and over again in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In fact, if you're reading with me the chronological plan, you've seen it a bunch of times just recently, right? Just this week, you've seen this, be holy for I am holy. Sometimes he uses that exact language, right? Be holy because I am holy. And sometimes he doesn't use that language. He says, this is the way you should be. I am the Lord. This is what you should do. I am the Lord. This is, what you should, this is how you should act. I am the Lord. You know what he's saying there? Be holy because I'm holy. Be holy because I'm holy. He says it over and over and over. And I just love the simplicity of it. Why be holy? Because the Lord said so. And when the Lord says so, that settles it. We do it. We, we don't get to negotiate this. We don't get to say, well, what if I was holy in 70% of my conduct? Would that be acceptable to you? No, he says, be holy for I am holy. He calls us to it. He commands us to it exactly, explicitly here in the text. So here's the application. Number one, this is for believers in Jesus. Like This is for those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. You are holy. I want you to let that sink in. You are holy. This text says, now be holy. Tom Schreiner said brilliantly and simply, Peter recognizes that the Christian life is not passive. The Christian life is not passive. The Christian life, it's not merely a matter of positional holiness, right? It's not merely a matter of what we receive when it is granted to us at conversion. That's positional holiness. We call it justification. God declares us righteous in the courtroom based on Christ's righteousness. Positional holiness is granted to us at conversion. And this is really good news. I'm not, I'm not diminishing that. In fact, this whole thing is built on that. In fact, I would say that the, the root of practical holiness, practical holiness that comes out in fruitful living, the root of that is positional holiness. It's the indicative that you are holy. He has made you holy, right? But that's not the whole story. And some of us would like it if it was just the whole story. If, if all I said was, he'll make you holy, he'll make you holy, and you, and you won't have to worry about how you live. What this text is teaching us is that he has made us holy positionally. 
and we should be holy practically. There is a corresponding practical personal holiness which we pursue with gratitude and in the power of the Spirit. In other words, there are high expectations of how we live as those who have been made holy. It's the fruit of the root that is positional holiness. So be different, brothers and sisters. Be pure, brothers and sisters, in all things. Let me say this. As you pursue this holiness, as you pursue holiness in all of your conduct, you're going to fall short over and over again. And there is grace and there is forgiveness. But we must not use grace as an excuse or abuse grace as a license to sin all the more. I, I, don't, I don't want to give you a bunch of disclaimers today about why not to pursue holiness. I want to be faithful to this text and say, be holy. Be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. You are holy, now be holy. Now that was for believers. Some of you cannot possibly be holy because you have not been made holy by grace through faith in Christ. So we're inviting you to be changed, experience the change that God brings to life when he rescues one from darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of his beloved son. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and experience that change and then live in light of it. I also want us to think here in application about the connection between our head and our heart in our hands, because really, like we separated verse 13 out last week and we dealt with it on its own, and now we're looking at 14 to 16, but really it's all together. One of the things that we have learned over the last couple of weeks is that we must anchor our head in the truth of God's word by rigorous and clear thinking, right? He said, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober in your thinking, dig into the truth, right? So we anchor our heads in the truth of God's word. And as we do that, we will elevate our hearts in response to this truth by proper and proportionate feeling. We've, we've seen things about hope. Hope's a matter of our hearts, is it not? We've seen things about joy and rejoicing. That's a matter of our hearts, is it not? So as our, as our heads are anchored in the truth, our hearts are stirred up, are stimulated to feel the right things. And, and I, I see that in some of you. I can like visually see it in some of you, right? I can see the joy that the truth of the gospel brings to your life. I can hear it in some of you as you sing. Some of you are not great singers. Like me. But you hear this truth and you're stirred up to sing out even if it's not pretty. I think it's pretty to the Lord. I think it's beautiful to the Lord when your hearts are stirred up by the truth to the point that it comes out. Now, listen, it's not going to come out of everybody the same way, right? Some of you are going to be hands up, screaming and shouting. Some of you are going to be heads down, weeping. Some of you are going to have this thing going on inside that might not come out in any observable way, but your mind is blown and your heart's on fire anyway. What I'm saying is if none of that's happening, whether it's shouting or running or whatever, if none of it's happening, I don't know that you've grasped the truth. So we anchor our heads in the truth, we elevate our hearts in feeling, and then we engage our hands 
inappropriate, holy, and submissive conduct. That's what this text is about. Be holy. Be different. Be pure. Your head, your heart, your hands, all connected in service to the Lord, right? That's, that's what we're looking for here. It is, it is the height of hypocrisy when someone understands a whole bunch of truth about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. It's the height of hypocrisy when they well up and shout and scream about it and their hearts are clearly moved with affection for God and they live like the devil. That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? So this call to holiness is an important aspect of the Christian life. It's not just about knowing. It's not just about feeling. It's about obedience. Friends, be holy. He's made you holy. Therefore, be holy. And we can help each other with this. That's why God has designed that we would meet, we would meet together regular, that we would live together on the regular. The local church is a great asset for our pursuit of truth in our heads, fire in our hearts, and holiness with our hands. We help each other by encouraging each other. We help each other by holding each other accountable. The local church is where this is supposed to happen. We need each other to be holy. So let's help. Let's help one another in love. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father in heaven, you have made us holy. By your grace, you have made us holy. You've given us new hearts. You've given us new names. You've given us, we are whole new creatures because of your grace. We want to be holy in all of our conduct because you said so. Father, forgive us when we make a mockery of the positional holiness you've granted to us at conversion. We make a mockery of it by living like the world. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, for holiness that is the product of the new heart you've given to us. But God, we know there are people in this room who don't have a new heart and they've got an old heart. It's dead, it's cold, it's a stone. And they can't do anything about that, but you can. You can take that old heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh. You can take that man who is dead in his trespasses and sins and make him alive with Christ. Only you can do that. And so we call on you to do that. For the sake of, for the sake of their good in eternity and for the sake of your glory in eternity, pray that you would raise people from the dead, make them new, make them holy, and let them be holy for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.